Well, everybody, well, good to see everyone here, you brave Minnesotans braving the cold. We'll begin with prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day together. We thank you that we can gather and learn your word. We pray as we look at these passages regarding the Great Commission and the dominion that you've given us as humans, we pray, Lord, that we would think well, that we'd be able to help those in error, that we would be those who are kind and gracious, and that we would be those who contend for the faith, Lord. Help us to think well now in the biblical text. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we're going to be continuing refuting the New Apostolic Reformation movement. I just want to do a little review. Last time we left off with the Great Commission, and there's just a couple more points I wanted to get into with you on this slide. The first thing I want to do is just do a little, little review of where we left off. Remember, we had talked about the debate with the New Apostolic Reformation proponents regarding the Great Commission as their claim is that the Great Commission is about really bringing geopolitical entities into Christendom, as Bob would phrase it, and yet we're claiming from the text, and we gave evidence last time, that the Great Commission is about making disciples, which happens when the gospel is preached and when individuals regenerated by the Spirit come to faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. They are added to the church, the true church, and that's what the Great Commission is about. And we said that, yes, when, we're do, we're, when we are about the Great Commission, we're going to be baptizing individuals, and we're also going to be teaching them. Notice in red it says that they are to observe all that I commanded you. So they are going to be not only baptized, but they're going to be taught the Scriptures so that they have a mind that is not conformed to the image of this world, but that is transformed, as we see in Romans 12, too. Now, notice at the very end in Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And the reason I wanted to focus on that for just a moment is recall that when we were going through post-millennialism, remember I showed you how post-millennialists claim that phrase, end of the age, was fulfilled in 70 A.D. So, So just think about that. They believe that the end of the age happened in 70 A.D. because for them... That marked the end of the Mosaic law since the temple was taken out of action, so to speak. And so for the post-millennial, the end of the age is 70 AD. So let's think about that. Jesus would be therefore saying that he would be with us even to 70 AD. That would be the reading with Matthew 28.20. So I want to show that to show the absurdity of post-millennialism, especially those in the Reformed tradition that hold to the post-millennial idea that the end of the age happened in 70 AD, Jesus would be saying, I'm with you all the way to 70 AD, and then I think by implication, you'd have to say, well, you're on your own now. (laughs) Did you see the absurdity of it? And this is why we're going to see time and time again, Bob has pointed this out numerous times, that eschatology, once it's perverted and distorted, it leads to all sorts of other error. And that's why eschatology matters, getting the order down. I think the Bible is actually very clear. Now, let's continue on, though, and I want to talk about dominionism. And let's ask the question, what kind of dominion do we really have? The new apostolic reformation movement builds their movement off of dominionism. And I want to cite to you one of the founders of NER, originally at least, C. Peter Wagner, He said this in a 2007 letter. This is C. Peter Wagner. 
He said this regarding the Dominion mandate. He said, quote, Our theological bedrock is what has been known as Dominion theology. This means that our divine mandate is to do whatever is necessary by the power of the Holy Spirit to retake the dominion of God's creation, which Adam forfeited to Satan in the Garden of Eden. Our goal in a word is transformation. We want to see whole cities and regions and states and nations transformed to support the values of the kingdom of God. Now stop there. There's more to this quote. But notice his goal is to see these geopolitical entities support the values of the kingdom. Notice the goal is not individuals being converted through the preaching of the gospel, having the forgiveness of sins and the absolute assurance of everlasting life. That's not the goal, but rather it's transformation of these various geopolitical entities. He goes on, he says, this will only happen as kingdom-focused saints become the head and not the tail of each of Lance Walno's seven mountains. This is that seven mountain mandate or molders of culture. Here in America, we have done fairly well in leading the religion mountain, but not the other six, unquote. And so here, what C. Peter Wagner is affirming is that they really do believe, these new apostolic reformation proponents, that we have to take dominion over the various aspects of life, whether it's the entertainment culture, whether it's academia, whether it's government. We have to take these things over and bring them to Christendom. That doesn't mean there's going to be conversions. He never mentions that. But rather, they're going to support kingdom values. And so instead of a, again, this gets back to the Great Commission, a Great Commission that is dedicated to seeing lost sinners spared from the wrath of God, you just have a culture that is brought to Christendom that paves the way to make life a little bit easier on the road to hell. That's ultimately what the New Apostolic Reformation movement does. Now, they claim we have dominion now, and this dominion that we have extends not just over animals, but it extends over other humans. And I want you to think about, again, how the issue is really one of timing. Because the Bible does teach that one day we will have dominion, we will rule and reign with Christ. In fact, as it says in Psalm 2, as it talks about in Isaiah, as the Messiah will one day reign, we are grafted into that as adopted brothers and sisters through faith in Christ, we will rule and reign. In fact, turn your Bibles again to 1 Corinthians 6, 3. I mentioned this passage last time, but I want to reiterate it. But I want you to see that this reign is going to be future. It's not now. So again, the issue was one of eschatology. If you get the ending wrong, if you think that that rule and reign is now because you're faulty eschatology, that's what really opens people up to dominionism. Again, 1 Corinthians 6, 3. Remember 1 Corinthians 6, 3. Bob is a chapter away from this. He will be getting into that uh, rather shortly. But recall 1 Corinthians 6, 3 is where Paul is upset that these Corinthians cannot settle simple disputes themselves, but they're suing one another. They're bringing each other to the courtroom and airing our dirty laundry, so to speak, before the unregenerate world. And he says basically and incredulously in verse 3 here, 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Now notice that phrase, we will judge. 
That's a future active indicative of krino. It's a future tense verb. Had Paul meant to say that we have dominion now and we are to rule and reign now, he would have used the present tense. He would say, don't you know that you're ruling and reigning now? He would have said something like that, but he doesn't say that. He talks about it being in the future. Why? Because our rule and reign over the planet, over angels and other humans, occurs when Christ has established his kingdom. So again, if you think that that is now, that the age of the millennium is now, as the post-millennialists believe, then you're open to dominionism. So it always goes back to eschatology. Let's look at one more that talks about the future reigning. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 5.10. Revelation 5.10. Remember, this is in that throne room scene. Revelation 5.10. I'll give you a moment to turn to that. As you're turning to Revelation 5.10, remember Revelation 5 is very important because it shows us the throne room from where Christ opens the seals. From the seven seals, you go to seven trumpets, from seven trumpets to seven bowls. And in Revelation 15.1, it says, with these, that is the bowls, the wrath of God is finished, implying that the seals, the trumpets, were all part of the wrath at the beginning, but the bowls finishes it. So the wrath of God is going to be poured out But notice here in Revelation 5.10, listen to the claim. It says, you have made them, this is the praise to Christ, you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God. So this is for every believer. And they will reign upon the earth. Notice will reign, future active indicative of basuluo. A basuluo is to reign, to be like a king. And so here you have a future promise that one day believers will reign where? Uh, strumming a harp on a cloud? Floating around like you see in the... It's always the toilet paper commercials that come to my mind, you know, the floaty little angels. And, but um, it's going to be on the earth, isn't it? That's where we're going to rule and reign. And so this idea that we have from the scriptures is that once the 70th week of Daniel is over... Christ will rule and reign with his people and it'll be on the earth for a thousand years. And that's exactly what the scriptures teach. So if you reject all of that, then you're left with the idea that the millennium is now as the post-millennialists claim and therefore our dominion is now. But again, why are we seeing all these future promises? We will reign, we will judge. It's always put off until the future kingdom. Let me tell you that one of the big issues in interpreting the scriptures between post-millennialists and us as premillennialists, is the issue of the clarity of the book of Revelation. We as evangelicals believe in the perspicuity of scripture, that scripture is clear, that it's not muddy. John MacArthur famously said regarding the end times, he said, are we claiming as evangelicals that the Bible is exceedingly clear, but until, until we get to eschatology, then it's really muddy? All of a sudden, we can't understand it? Well, no, of course, it's clear as well. It's human beings who muddy the waters. The scriptures are actually very clear. So think about this. In post-millennialism, the reason why they want to reject Revelation is they claim that Jesus' teachings, for example, in John 5, about the coming judgment of both the living and the dead, both those who are saved and those who are lost, that resurrection, they say, is only going to be one event. And so they take summary statements of Jesus 
and they say that is all of eschatology is wrapped within those statements. And what Revelation does is just makes it more unclear. What we would say is that Jesus in John 5 is giving a summary statement and Revelation gives clarity by giving you the details that flesh out the summary statement. So instead of making it more clear, the post-millennialists say that Revelation just muddies the water. Who can understand it? And so they just punt on ever trying to understand it. That's why they're in such grave error. Turn your Bibles to John 5, 28 through 29. I'll show you the summary statement that they often appeal to. And again, I want you to be aware of this. This is what opens us up to this dominion, this false dominion mandate that we have now, a dominion over other humans. John 5, 28 through 29. Please turn your Bibles there. John 5, 28 through 29. Notice Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to the resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now, notice the summary is there's going to be a resurrection for those who belong to Christ, those who do good deeds, the resurrection of life, and there's a resurrection of judgment. What the post-millennialist will do is they say, aha, that all happens at one time. It all happens at once. But when you look at the book of Revelation, we realize that actually we have a separation of these two judgments by at least a thousand years. You have the resurrection of the saints before the 70th week of Daniel. Those who are martyred are given a resurrection after the 70th week of Daniel. And then after a thousand years in Revelation chapter 20, you have a resurrection of all of the damned at the white throne judgment. So what you and I do is we say, well, Jesus is obviously giving a summary. Just as oftentimes Bob and I will be preaching, I might give the gospel and say, well, Jesus is returning again to bring wrath upon his enemies and salvation to his people. Now, from that summary, do I mean that there aren't details and that it it doesn't happen at different times? No, I'm giving a summary. In the same way, Jesus is obviously giving us a summary in John 5, 28 through 29. But Revelation provides the details. The post-millennials say, no, Jesus is giving us the exact timing in this passage, and Revelation just obscures it. Again, each one of you is on the hook before God as to what you believe. And so you have to wrestle with it yourself to say, is Revelation providing clarity or is it as the post-millennialists are claiming, is it just muddying the waters and who can really understand it? Yes, Eric. Thanks, Carly, for being our runner. Yeah, and, and the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John and he wrote Revelation. Amen. So, in other words, you have to... And, and I've argued with some people because apparently, and you guys would know more than I do about this, I think there are some people who dispute whether John wrote both of the Gospel and the book of Revelation, but I think that's been resolved pretty well that John wrote both of them. Is, is that right? Absolutely. That's okay. the unanimous... Um, testimony of the early historians like Eusebius. Um, absolutely, John wrote both. Yeah. In fact, from some of the writings that we have from secular historians, 
I'm sorry, uh, from church historians, quote-unquote. We know also it was at the, during the reign of Domitian. I think that was from Irenaeus. And so we know that it had to be around 95 AD. So not only do we know that John wrote it, we know it was at Patmos, and we know when it was written. The reason that's important is because many who try to distort the book of Revelation will claim that it was written during the time of Nero. But no, we have clear testimony from Irenaeus. Irenaeus, by the way, knew Polycarp. Polycarp was a personal disciple of John. Okay, so we have very good eyewitnesses to the fact that this was written during the reign of Domitian. It would have been in the 90s at Patmos, and it was by John the Apostle. So, yeah, very good. Thank you for bringing that up. And that's a great point you make, Eric, because, yes, this book of John, the Gospel, um, along with the epistles, the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation all written by him. And so, absolutely. Uh, by the way, when some people will ask about the rapture, why isn't the rapture in Revelation, we know for sure the rapture is taught in John 14. So Bob has been teaching us Luke Acts is a two-volume set. Think in some sense that John has written on the rapture in John 14. Uh, remember he says, I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house. In my father's house there are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house so that he says, I'm going to come to bring you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. So think about that. He's coming to get us. He's going to bring us to himself so that where he is, where is he? He's going to be in heaven. We're going to be there. So the post-millennialist and the amillennialist, they try to claim, well, that text is just about us dying and going to be with Jesus. Well, that's a strange way that Jesus is coming personally to come and get us. Um, I don't see that. I see 2 Corinthians 5.8 referring to our natural death if we should die prior to the Lord returning, which says to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. But I think certainly John 14, 1 through 3 is a rapture passage. So yes, the rapture is taught by John. John very clearly lays out the details of eschatology. And so again, John 5, 28 through 29 is the summary. Revelation gives us the details. Okay, that's how we should see it. Now, where do these Reconstructionist or Dominionist in the New Apostolic Reformation movement get this idea that we have a dominion mandate over other humans? Well, I want to put up the primary texts that they use, but I'm going to show you that they're obviously misapplying it, and this isn't even hard to see their error. Genesis 1.26, listen to the promise here that God gives. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I love that last phrase, everything that creeps upon the earth. It, uh, it's very creepy. <laughs> Think about all the things you know that are kind of creepy. It's, it, we have dominion over all of it. Think about the breakdown of this. We have dominion over the fish in the sea. There you have all the sea creatures. The birds of the sky is everything that flies. And then you have the cattle as representing and all the other creeping things, everything on the earth. So it's everything in the sea, everything in the sky, and everything on the earth. As far as creatures other than human beings, we have dominion. That's the issue. And so the question is, where do we see that we have dominion over the nations? That's the question. That's the assertion that is being made by the New Apostolic Reformation Movement. Well, where is it? We can read I see the fish, and I see the, the sea creatures, the birds, the cattle, over all these animals, but I don't see anything about the nations. The other question I think we have to ask is, where is the dominion over other humans? 
that's related, of course, to the nations. We don't have it there. Uh, Bob, why don't you comment on this? You wrote an article, one of your first ones that I think we had published. It was before I even knew you. It was actually a seminary paper. Yeah, why don't you explain what you wrote about? Well, I had to... By God's grace, I was at seminary at the right time in his providence when they were requiring a lot of this. And you had to use theological journal articles in your papers. Amen. So I did one on a dominion mandate, uh, found someone who was promoting it, and then went into the journals and found their key text and then refuted it. And we published it later on critical issues. Yeah. And uh, it just isn't there. Right. The Dominionists, I think the most famous one is probably originally Rush Dooney. And then I think Gary North was his son-in-law. And then there were other famous Dominionists. And in the late 80s, they hooked up with Earl Polk mm. in Georgia, who was a charismatic version of Dominionism. And they thought, this is it. Reagan's president. Things are going better. Here's our time. So they had a big... Uh, enclave coming to this harvester church and all this is happening yeah so i wrote this paper and we have it published all of their key texts don't say what they want them to say right there's nothing about taking dominion over other humans the same when you get into the genesis one yeah that comes up after the flood the same in matthew 28 and so I laid this out and turned it in, and the teacher I had at the time, Dr. Rakestraw, wanted me to try to get it published in a theological journal, but I, I didn't have the credentials to do something like that. Wow. We ended up publishing it, but ourselves, they don't have the evidence. They're just assuming most Christians aren't going to be concerned about the details. Right. They're going to fill their own thing, and then this doctrine doesn't come from scripture alone it comes from church history yes and so they looked later with constantine and things that happened in church history and things that i would look at and see as apostasy they see as a role model that to be improved upon Mm. in other words whatever the Holy Roman Empire, as has been said, it's not Holy Roman or an empire. Um, and then after that, various versions of dominionism, that that is indeed the calling of the church. And they don't care how long it takes. So they don't believe in any imminent judgment or return of Christ. Right. So on that one fellow that I did write to before I started doing writings in the 80s, said, I don't have time to swat every fly that goes through my screen, me. Oh. And I, I don't care what you say. We live in a reconstructionist universe, and it doesn't matter if it takes 52,000 more years. It's still going to happen. Oh, my goodness. That was Gary North. Gary okay. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, there are others now. There's a guy by the name of Doug Wilson who's very famous in the homeschooling movement who's now promoting this. Hmm. And I haven't had time to get up to speed with the latest. And I may not because I have other duties right now. Yeah. And we, we may deal with it on our podcast, but yeah. it's not in the Bible. Right. And Amen. frankly, if you read church history, the one thing you learn, it's very difficult for 
Christians who do believe the Bible and are born of God and are gathered together to even have church discipline within their own. That's what I was preaching on last week from right. the thing in Corinth. So how are you going to take unregenerate people, rule over them, and make them act like Christians? <laughs> right. Try to get Christians to act like Christians right. is a miracle from God. <laughs> and now we're going to make the pagans act like Christians? Yeah. Very the absurdity good of it is astounding, but they never <laughs> give up. And I, 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 here's my assessment after decades of fighting this. Yeah. The lust for power isn't just amongst liberals. The conservatives have the same lust, and they want power, and they want power over other people, and they want to force them to do what they think they ought to do. And they literally think the Roman Catholic Church is a role model for that. Yeah. It just needs to be improved upon. Wow. And when you ask about the 100-year war, the 30-year war, the... Yeah, just the messiness. We're still working on it. We're right. still working on it. Yeah. It's getting better. And it's just a bad reading of history. And so thank you for bringing this up. Yeah, because these battles need to be fought. Because honestly, once this is the agenda, redemption, forgiveness, atonement, fleeing from the wrath of God, and looking forward to eternal hope, yeah. always goes right out the window. That's right. And it'll go so far away that some of the people like this Kenneth Hagin, the faith guy, they won't even admit he died. He just decided to go to heaven. Wow. Assuming that's where he went, which we'll, who knows. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, the point is they won't even admit that they die like other people. Yes. And, dear ones, don't let this infect you, your family, or anybody else. It never works. Right. Um, Rick Warren's version now has already gone to pieces. Yeah. All of that glory they had in 2008, where is it? Right, right. Where is it now? Where is it? They yeah. never admit they fail. Right. That was their three-legged stool, right? Yeah. They yeah. never admit, even when they fail, they never admit they fail. Right. Well said. So thank you, Bobby. I think about the interesting quantity. Uh, Ron, back there. Uh, thank you, uh, Rich. Uh, just before you speak, Ron, I was going to mention, it's interesting, Bob met... Uh, mentioned the fact that we are getting this from the right, as it were, like the new apostolic reformation movement, that we have dominion over other humans. So think of the interesting quandary that we have as the people of God. On the right, we have the new apostolic reformation movement who's saying, you all have dominion over other humans, which is clearly a misreading of the text. But from the left, and the environmentalist on the left, they're saying you don't have any dominion at all. Uh, the lizard is just as important as you are, and how dare you uh, fill in that little swamp in the back of your yard to put grass in because you're wrecking pristine planet Earth. So isn't that interesting? You and I are the ones who have to say, hey, no, the Bible is very clear. We have dominion, but it's not over other humans. It's humans having dominion over other animals and over the rest of creation so that you and I can be fruitful and multiply and live lives that are pleasing to God, that we would be vice regents, not co-regents, but vice regents upon the earth that bring him glory. That was the purpose of it. And so, yes, we don't have dominion over humans. We got to refute the NAR, but we do have dominion over the rest of the earth. We have to refute the left-wing environmentalists. Yeah, Ron. 
So a question, do the, any of the dominionists ever get Israel right? Not that I've seen. Uh, Bob, do you have any thoughts on? I have an update on that. Okay. <laughs> the, here's the, one of the latest things, and I heard from a pastor in Israel who republished an article I wrote on the NAR. The NAR believes now that there's going to be an Elijah company. Mm. So they have a version of Israel and literal eschatology, but rather than there be a rapture, uh, what happens is the Elijah company are a company of prophets greater, doing greater miracles than Jesus ever did. And this Elijah company, many of them are, according to the testimony of this pastor that contacted me, are going, taking tours of buses to Israel. They're going to Israel, and they're getting ready to defeat Antichrist when he shows up. Oh, wow. They are going to defeat Antichrist. Wow. And how false doctrine is going to defeat anybody but the people who hold it yes. is a major question. So they published that article in, I think, five different languages, whatever languages are used in Israel. And when I heard back from the pastor, and he got, he, he got it sent around, well, they can't refute the article. It's basically what's going to go into that film that's being made now about the NAR by that uh, Brandon Kimber. And he, and he has a bunch of people in that. So now they're going to pietism. We're willing to die for what we believe. Hmm. So they, we, we're out there, and the missiles are coming in, and we're pious. <laughs> but they, they don't have exegetical arguments that will uh, hold up to Scripture. They have lots of heat and mo- emotion and bold claims. They can't really do those miracles, but they say they're going to. Yeah. It doesn't happen. They're going to be the Elijah Company. They're going to defeat Antichrist. Here's here's an easy way to understand it. There's no claim so prideful, so grandiose, so over the top that they won't make it. Wow. And they don't even blush. Hmm. And if that one fails next year, there's going to be even greater miracles, even when there wasn't. In fact, Todd Bentley's latest thing came out prophesying what's going to happen in the year 2023. Greater signs and wonders, greater miracles, greater outpourings than we've ever experienced before. And he's going back to the scene of, late, was it Lakeland, Florida? He's going back and redigging the wall, and they're going to do it. It never happens, but it's just a deception. Wow. Ron, does that help? Okay, very good. Yeah, and I'm sorry, I'll come right to you, Brian. Um, it's very interesting, as Bob was talking about that, think about this Elijah company. When Speaking of eschatology, does Elijah and the Moses-like two witnesses come on the scene? Well, according to Revelation 11, they're going to do that for 42 months. It's during the last three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel. So again, these people are placing it within the church age rather than the 70th week. Um, how is Jesus Christ actually destroyed? Is it by human effort? Well, 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says it's by the splendor of Christ's coming. So, and you see the, the details of that in Revelation 19, what Christ does. So, it's interesting. They're taking upon themselves in their own human abilities something that Christ alone will do. 
He's the one who's going to abolish and destroy the Antichrist, not us. So again, it's by Christ, his power, his grace, not by our works, but they always distort. They're, every single distortion is always an injection of human works, and it's an attack on grace. God alone is the one who does it. Yeah, Brian. Just a little side note. Has anybody seen in the Israeli news where this the Messiah has come and they have this guy out there who's attracting hundreds of thousands people are flying there he's like wow. uh, doing miracles all over the place so-called miracles sure. and uh, people are just flocking to him he's all over the Israeli news right now I have not seen that I'm um wow Yeah, yeah. Well, he'd fit right in with the new Apostolic Reformation movement. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Eric. The, yes. The um, Revelation 13, and I believe in Daniel 7, it actually says, and this blew me away, yeah. that the Antichrist will be given jurisdiction yes. to go after the believers and to kill them, to slaughter, slaughter them whole scale. Yes. I mean... And God is giving them dominion to do this. Yes. And, of course, he's building up wrath. I mean, the consummation, the end of sin will be consummated, and that's when God gets glory to come in and just, boom, bring in his wrath and his judgment. Yeah, absolutely. So, again, I think the wrath begins at the beginning of the 70th week, but absolutely, Revelation 13, 5, the Antichrist is given authority to reign for 42 months. Um, one of the issues there is that 42 months in some, like the pre-wrath scheme, what they would claim is that it has to be less than that. Um, because, for example, in Matthew 24, 21 through 22, Jesus says, unless those days be cut short, no flesh would survive. They take that phrase and say, well, that last three and a half years is going to be cut short to be less than that. The problem that I would have with that would be that in Revelation 13, 5, it clearly states that the Antichrist will reign for three and a half years. And so you would have to say that John was an heir after he, under the inspiration of the Spirit, was writing after Matthew did. In other words, if being cut short is less than three and a half years, then John has to be an heir as he records Revelation 13, 5, that the Antichrist reigns for three and a half years or 42 months. So the way we should conceptualize it is the wrath of God begins at the beginning of the seal judgments. Remember, they all come from his... When you get to Revelation 15, it says with these, remember the bull judgments? The wrath of God is finished meaning it's completed. Well, it, it began somewhere. So the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, they all come from the Messiah, from his throne room. That's all the wrath of God. What Revelation 13 is telling us is that rather than the authority coming to those who become to faith in Christ, the authority is going to be given to Antichrist, and he will rule and reign, and what's going to stop him is the personal intervention of Jesus Christ who will destroy him in the easiest battle that you've ever seen. It's the splendor of his coming. Um, can you imagine? That's some boasting. Uh, that's, um, can you imagine? You, you say, you know, we got a football game next week. What's your plan, coach? Well, we're going to destroy him with the splendor of our coming. <laughs> can you imagine that? That's mighty boastful. But you know what? The Lord Jesus, he'll, bring, he, he'll back it up. And that's the great news. So. Yeah, <laughs> we almost got destroyed by the, the lack of our splendor, right? Yeah, but we did pull it out. That was a miracle right there, right? Yeah. Yeah, so that was a great game yesterday, I have to say. Um, if anyone hasn't seen it, I don't know if I want to wreck it for you. My son hasn't seen it. I'm going to tell him to watch it. He was out all day. 
And I'm just going to see, you may want to watch, there's some good plays. Even he'll see it at 33, nothing at halftime, and then he'll be pleasantly surprised. So anyway, well, I want to show you another text that the Dominionists use and the New Apostolic Reformation Movement. Again, this is in Bob's article. You can read about it. Um, it was the first article that I think you published with CIC. I mean, you put it... It's under scholarly. Scholarly, okay, very good. But here, turn your Bibles to Revelation 9, verses 1 through 6, if you will. And again, I'm just showing you other texts. They, they don't mean what they claim they mean, but I'm showing you what they use. So we'll look and see that Genesis 9, 1 through 6 does not contradict what we see in Genesis 1, 26 on the screen. But again, they use this text, Genesis 9, 1 through 6. Let's read it. We'll actually use it a segue to get into the next section here. I'm sorry, did I say Revelation? I had that written down. Genesis 9, 1 through 6. I apologize. Genesis 9, 1 through 6. You'll see that Genesis 9, 1 through 6 does not contradict Genesis 1, 26. Here it is. It says, Genesis 9, 1, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, so remember, this is after the, the flood, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky and everything that creeps on the ground. By the way, stop there for just a moment. Do you remember in Revelation, real quickly, you have the fourth seal judgment and a fourth of the earth is going to be killed by sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. That is a sign that you have a reversal of the creation order because here there's going to be a terror upon all of the animals of us. And so one of the things that we see in the 70th week of Daniel is if God overcame chaos in his creation, the reign of Antichrist and all those things, everything that happens within the 70th week is in some sense a return to that chaos. Now the animals will be dragging people away. Well, that's the opposite of what God had ordained, all because of the evils of mankind and God's wrath poured out. So that's a connection you want to make. Why are the wild beasts carrying people away? Well, it's a a reversal of Genesis 9, uh, verse 2. Okay, so it says, And all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely, he says, I will require your lifeblood from every beast, I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Now, notice here in verse 6, we come to the institution, really, of government. The purpose of government, he says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Notice once again, we see no dominion over other human beings. We see the same dominion alluded to in Genesis 1.26. We have dominion over all other creatures, but not human beings. But very carefully in Genesis 9.6, here we have the institution of government where if someone is to murder another human being made in the image of God, their blood is to be shed. They are to be put to death. That is because of the sanctity of human life. Many years ago, um, to, who was that fellow? He was on MASH. I think he played B.J. Honeycutt. Whoever that actor is, he was in a debate with Dennis Prager. No, that was uh, Hawkeye. Um, anyway, whoever that was, I believe that he was in a debate with Dennis Prager. And Dennis Prager, of course, they're debating capital punishment. 
And this man is aghast that Dennis Prager would believe that it's moral to put murderers to death. And that's all because those on the left will continuously reject Genesis 9-6. So that's why on the left, they are always cruel to the kind, but they're kind to the cruel. The murderers, we let them go. We bail them out. No big problem there. Um, Why? Because they don't believe that if you murder, your, your blood should be shed. By the way, this is not just Old Covenant. This is reiterated in the New Covenant. Romans 13, 4, Paul says, regarding the government authorities, they do not bear the sword in vain. What does it mean not to bear the sword in vain? It means you can use it. He's saying that they are to use it. Why? Because they are to put murderers to death. That's the role of government. The role of government is to restrain evil. As I've said often, we've seen a shift in that as the Marxists take over. The role of government is no longer to restrain evil. It's to redistribute wealth. So the battle that we have before us in some sense is which are is the government going to perform? Redistribution of wealth, taking from the haves, giving to the have-nots, bringing about a kingdom, or is it going to do its God-ordained role, which is to restrain evil? Now, what I want to do then is I want to turn to our next section, use this as a segue, to come to talking about the church and the state. And the reason I put it in a question form is the dominionists are claiming that if cer- certainly we have dominion over the church, but they're claiming we as Christians have dominion over the state, and I would object to that. Rather, the way we should see that is the church and the state are both ordained by God to have different roles. The church's role, we as believers who are called out of this world, who have come to faith in Christ, our role is to make disciples, to, as we saw in our great commission in Matthew 28. We are to proclaim the gospel. By God's grace, he will regenerate those that he's called, bring them to faith in Christ. That's our goal, is to preach and teach the gospel. The state's goal and designed by God is to restrain evil, to protect humans made in the image of God. And again, he is sovereign over both. Now, let me put up a passage that talks about this sovereignty that God has and why, therefore, we should be in subjection rather than over the government. So what's interesting is the dominionists are saying, well, we should be over the government. The Bible's teaching that we should be submitting to the government. Now, I'll talk about some caveats in this, but let's read the text. Romans 13, 1 through 2. It says, every person, stop there. Notice it doesn't say except for the dominionists or the reconstructionists or the people of the NAR movement, but every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, a couple things I want to point out here. I hope my pointer, can you everyone see my pointer on the screen? Good. Does everyone see the term, first of all, uh, let's look at governing. Does everyone see the term governing there? It's Hooper Echo. It's actually a participle. And it means to restrain. That's probably the best rendering of it. So the way I would render this if I had the Eric Dauma version is I would say every person is to be in subjection to the restraining authorities. Now, the reason I think that that's helpful and clarifying is because, remember, that's the goal of government is to what? It's to restrain evil. It's not to do evil. It's to restrain it. That's the idea. And so it doesn't mean that God just carte blanche gives whatever some evil dictator does is something noble and good. They're, they're, they're allowed providentially to exist, but their goal is to restrain 
the evil. That's why they're restraining authorities. The term authority there is exousia. It's just a general term for those in governance, or it could refer to whatever the authority is. And I'll make the case that we have a unique situation in America where the authority is not a man but a document. And I'll show you why I think that that may be actually a blessing to us. But turn your Bibles. Let me further elucidate the restraining authorities of the government. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 2.13. 1 Peter 2.13. Let's turn our Bibles there. This is a passage that would be very synonymous with what we see in Romans 13.1-2. In fact, you'll see Hooper Echo used once again. 1 Peter 2.13, notice it says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a, to a king as one in authority. Now stop there. That term authority is hooper echo. And again, I think it's very... So in other words, the term isn't exousia. It's hooper echo. And so the way I would render that, again, the, the best rendering is really restraining. The, the one who is in the role of restrainer is probably the best way of rendering that. Or to governors as sent by him for the punishment, and here's a parallel idea, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. That's the purpose of government. It's to restrain the evildoer and to, what, praise those who are obeying the law, as it were. And that's why it's very disturbing. We think about Antichrist, which is going to be the pinnacle of this. What is he referred to as the man of lawlessness, where evil is called good and good is called evil. You see the spirit of Antichrist in the world today, where you'll see people who do evil being rewarded. Those who burn down and loot Minneapolis, they're bailed out by our vice president, right? But those who say, hey, I think there may be a problem with our election laws, they're jailed for 434 days without a trial because they said, I don't really like the fact that the ballot box is stuffed. So there you have a reversal of this very thing. So, yes, Brian. That's why you came to the conclusion in the Book of Revelation study that with the removal of the restrainer was not the church, was you, you concluded the government. Yeah, the, the two best answers have always been the Holy Spirit and government. I kind of lean more towards government. One of the reasons I, uh, Bob and I have both been on the same page with that, it's difficult. There, there are good men like March Hickok who will say it's the Holy Spirit and makes very compelling um, arguments. One of the difficulties in the restrainer passage is about why is it that Paul is referring to the Holy Spirit in such an opaque way? Why doesn't he just spell it out? Maybe it's because the Thessalonians, they knew what he was saying, and so he didn't have to. But another reason, perhaps, is because if he were talking about government, the Romans would have seen that as sedition. And so that's why. And the other thing that we see is that Throughout the scriptures, it's government that's used to restrain evil. What happens in the 70th week of Daniel? We know that Babylon will be rebuilt, where instead of having multiple borders, multiple kings, nations, that uh, Bob always makes the example of the Nazis. They get out of control. All the other nations beat them back into submission. You won't have that anymore because all of them will give allegiance to the Antichrist. So, um, again, the, the two best answers to the restrainer is either the Holy Spirit or government. And, again, both can be good cases can be made for both yep yeah very good anybody else any questions i'm sorry uh, rich yes just that chapter two. yes it, it says that when the restrainer is taken out of the way antichrist will appear 
Yes. So the Lord is keeping the restrainer right there in place, and, and you're equating government with restrainer. So when the government is taken out of the way, or maybe there's the cops, you know, the, the authorities that are restraining evil. Um, I've heard John MacArthur saying even the church, the family. Yes. Um, so many details go into the restrainer. But when the restrainer is taken out of the way, and, and government, I would assume, is the big one, when that's taken out of the way, Antichrist is coming about. Yeah, very well said. So we have in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, remember the first thing within the 70th week of Daniel is not just an apostasy. It's with the definite article, the apostasy. Leon Morris, a great Australian scholar, he lived in his 90s. Um, I don't think he's with us anymore, but he was in his um, mid-90s, I think, and he was still writing commentaries. He made a very good point. He said, you know, with the definite article attached to the apostasy, more than likely what is seen in the first part of the 70th week of Daniel is not some religious defection. That's probably not how it's being used, but rather the departure from God's ordained rule of many nations where all of a sudden you have a giving of authority to one nation or to one ruler. And so he, see the, uh, he saw, that is Leon Morris, the apostasy, the apostasy as one that was a political revolt, one in which instead of many nations, many borders is ordained by God, you all of a sudden were going to have a one-world order, a return to Babylon. And that was a revolt that would be not just an apostasy, the apostasy. And so I think you tie that to the idea of the restrainer it's t- it could be, perhaps be tied in with the idea that the government will no longer have its ordained function. The government will be one nation under Antichrist perpetrating evil rather than restraining evil. And that all begins at the beginning of the 70th week, and it just gets worse as you proceed. Yeah, Bob. Well, you brought up Babylon. That's, yes. that's what convinced me <clears throat> as you look at Genesis that the desire to build Babylon you know, to re- yes. get back what they lost through the flood. Yes. And God's way of stopping that was the establishment of the table of nations. Amen. And individual governments with boundaries and whatever. And so it, no one can ever, it's so far, got control over the whole thing and done whatever they want. But we've seen what it looks like. Right. I think right. it was Dave Hunt that called Hitler almost Antichrist. Yeah. <laughs> See, when, when one person does whatever they want, without any fear of anybody else dealing with them, it just gets multiplied, the evil. Right. And so once there are no other forces to stop it, it that's what will happen. Amen. In fact, um, if, if someone, could we turn to Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9? Let's turn to that just so we see this worldview passage because it, it's coming up right now. And I was going to get to it later, but let's just talk about it now because here we see what's ordained by God the many numerous nations. And it also shows us that one nation uniquely belonged to God is in his inheritance, which was Israel. And that shows us then that America is not a quote-unquote covenant nation, as many in the NER or the Reformed tradition have claimed in the post-millennial variety. Notice Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9. This is part of the Song of Moses. Notice it says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance... When he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now, stop there for a moment. Some of your versions will say the sons of Israel. That is not the best reading. Um, And we don't have time to get into that, but the best data suggests that the best reading was the sons of God. And the reason it was changed by a scholar to the sons of Israel 
is because it really, in the Israelite notion, smacked in the face of Deuteronomy 6.4, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. How can he ordain these nations in light of the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim? Well, what the B'nai Elohim is, is it's in fact God's divine counsel. It's, they're not gods in the sense that they were polytheists. It was simply a reference to angels. Remember, God alone has a saity. He is the one who has the self-existence, eternal uh, being. He's the only one who is non-contingent. Every other being, including the angels, are contingent. But because they are part of his divine counsel, they're referred to in the Hebrew scriptures as the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God. And so, yeah, I'm sorry, Scott, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, Deuteronomy 32.8. Yes, thank you. What's that? Yeah, so um, what I'm showing is that I think the best reading it should be according to the numbers of the sons of God. So what does that mean? So what it means is that God ordained the nations to correspond to the angelic realm. So you had different nations that were given to the divine council. One of the places you see evidence of this is found in Daniel chapter 10. Do you remember in Daniel chapter 10, Gabriel says that he was kept from coming to answer Daniel's prayers because he was held up by the prince of Persia. Now, who is that prince of Persia? Well, it was a demonic being that was impeding Gabriel until Michael, the archangel, intervened. Now, I'm telling you this because it was revealed in Scripture. I would not know this. As Bob often says, we don't have eyes to see in the spiritual realm. Because it was revealed in Scripture, we know that that happened. But the implication of that is there are these demonic beings and angelic beings that are attached to these nations. Why is it called the Prince of Persia? So what we see here is that, yes, all these nations were allotted to the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, this divine council, But notice there's going to be one nation that belongs to Yahweh, and it's not the United States. Verse 9, it says, For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, again, Jacob is renamed Israel in in history. So Israel, or Jacob, is the allotment of his his inheritance. So very important passage, because in that passage we see multiple nations that God ordained. So when you see people say, hey, I want to... Remember, um, who was the, the Beatle who sang that song, Imagine? John Lennon? Imagine there's no heaven above, no hell below. There's no borders. I think that's in there. I think he just calls them nations. Nothing to die for. You can imagine, if you will. And he has this really beautiful little tune. But it's this dream of those who want to build Babylon, that we're going to have a borderless world. No longer any reason to kill or have war. Well, when does war actually gotten rid of? Well, by the Messiah in the millennial kingdom, the nations, that's what we see in Isaiah 2. The nations will have their swords beat into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. But John Lennon says we can do it if we just imagine. All right? So the point is part of a biblical worldview. And by the way, in Acts 17.26, we see this in the New Covenant as well, where in Athens, Paul affirms that God ordains many nations. So it's not, someone can't just say, well, this is Deuteronomy, that's Old Covenant. Well, no, it's under the New Covenant as well. The Apostle Paul, who speaks for Christ, gives a sermon under this inspiration of the Spirit where he says, yes, God has ordained the nations. And so borders are part of God's ordained rule. And part of the apostasy in the 70th week of Daniel is that will go away. 
That's what I believe will happen. Okay, so government is important. The point that I want to make in the slide, we only have a few minutes left, is that we are not in dominion as Christians over the state, but rather in subordination to the state. And again, the state has its role to restrain evil. That doesn't mean that everything they do is good. If they start doing evil, they are standing against God's ordained will, his revealed will. Um, let's talk about one more thing. We've got a few minutes left. Notice this term subjection. Hubitasso literally means to subordinate. And so the way I would read this is that every one of us is to subordinate ourselves to the restraining authority. What's very interesting is I want to help us relate this. And the next time we do Sunday school, I'll spend maybe the entirety of our hour about this. I want to help us as a church. And I'm not talking just locally, but just every believer. I want us to help relate this to the way we should relate to the state. And here's my, the, one of the points that I want to make is I would say that we are to be in subordination to the restraining authorities. What is the restraining authority in the United States? Well, it's ultimately the Constitution. It's not a man. And so how do we know that? Well, notice it says, for there's no authority except from God. So the one thing we can affirm is I'm not claiming that the Constitution is some divine pact in which God inerrantly gave us, like the scriptures, by the inspiration of the Spirit, this covenant, this constitution. No, it's not that. We are not a Christian nation. We are one of the goyim, the nations, that are allotted to the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God. That's all we are. But we can say providentially God allowed our constitution to come into existence ever since 1787. Was it September 25th, 1787? We've been under that rule. That has been the authority. The authority. Since 1791, December 15th, we've had a Bill of Rights. That is the authority. And so we have to submit ourselves and be in subjection to that authority. That is the restraining authority. Now, why do I point that out? Recently, I heard a politician, I won't mention the name, a very high-ranking one say that the Second Amendment is not absolute. Well, I would say that that is precisely what we are all to be in subjection of to that restraining authority. The person who made that statement that the Second Amendment is not absolute, is his decree absolute? Why is his decree absolute? It's not. And so providentially, you and I have law and order established by the Constitution. My dad, when he was in the Army, swore an oath not to do everything that an elected official said, but to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States and he's against all aggressors, foreign and domestic. I know, um, Greg, are you here? You, you probably swore that same oath when you were in the Army as a tank driver. and Yeah, same thing, right? So why? Because that is the authority. And so my point in saying that is what we'll work through is that's how I think we should see our governing authorities. In other words, we have a duty and an obligation as Christians, but also one who lives under the state. And under the state that's been ordained by God, our ultimate authority is the law, not any man. And that's a blessing to us. Think about the Apostle Paul. Turn, we'll leave with this. The Apostle Paul in Acts 22:25, he's about to be scourged, and he appeals to the Roman law. He says this. He says, but when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing with him, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who was a Roman and uncondemned? Well, the point is, to Roman law, it was not. And this man gulped. In fact, the man who was in authority over the centurion, they both could have been on the hook for falsely flogging a Roman citizen. 
In other words, Paul appealed to the law that was there. And I think we can do the same thing. So in other words, here's what I want us to think about. I think we can find ourselves real quickly in a false dilemma where on the one hand, NER, we, the New Apostolic Reformation Movement, we're going to create a Christian nation. We're going to have a covenant or we have a covenant with God and we're going to create a Christian nation. No, we're not. We never were a Christian nation, never will be. We are part of the goyim, the nations that were allotted to the B'nai Elohim and by God's grace, as the gospel is preached, the elect will come out and be part of the glorious kingdom. But on the other hand, we don't simply say, well, I'm going to do anything any elected official ever says, because after all, Romans 13, I would appeal to the fact that the authority is the Constitution. And I have an obligation as a citizen to live up to that and to make sure. So take the example, simple analogy, a sheriff is elected. He goes into a a restaurant and starts shooting up the place. Do we say, well, got to let him do it. After all, Romans 13. No, we would say, hey, that man is violating the authority, which is the law. He needs to be restrained. That's the point that I would make, is that we make others live up as citizens. Again, not doing it to build the kingdom, but doing it because we have responsibilities as citizens here as well, that no, no one's above the law or the restraining authority. That's the way we should see it, I think. And again, I'll make that case further in our next session. So with that, let's, um, let's close in prayer. I'm so excited for Bob's message today. How many slides, Bob? 23? So get your seatbelts on when you're in your pew. We're gonna <laughs> That's good, exciting, yeah. Praise God. Thank you, Lord, for our time together. We thank you for a beautiful day. We thank you for the creation that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us dominion so that we can be fruitful that we can multiply, that you've given us all these blessings. I pray, Lord, uh, for protection upon us, that we would think biblically. I pray for Bob as he preaches to us. I pray that we'd have ears to hear the glories out of the book of Luke. I pray that you'd give him stamina as he speaks and give us ears to hear. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.